Peace, peace, and welcome to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. Today we have with us Dr. Bryant Marks, really accomplished, esteemed uh, professor at the great uh, Morehouse University. I'm unfortunately not a Morehouse man, but <laughs> he not only is one, he had it, he he teaches there now. I have a few other accomplishments I'll, or past work I'll list off. As a former senior advisor to the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities, mm-hmm. uh, he is a commissioner for the White House Initiative on uh, Educational Excellence for African Americans, um, the director of programs for on Black Male Achievement at Morehouse and uh, the assistant and associate professor for the Department of Psychology at Morehouse. I got the great fortune of meeting this dynamic man uh, in Southern California last year before COVID and heard him incredibly move our audience about his, related to his training on implicit bias and the charge of his work um, that he currently is doing now. So with that, that was a long intro. (laughs) But Dr. Brian Marks, thank you. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the last thing I mentioned was like implicit bias, which mm-hmm. has sort of taken on multiple different iterations in terms of like its embrace within mm-hmm. school systems and uh, within the criminal justice system. Can you talk, can you, for people that may not know, just explain what implicit bias is and what your current work on that looks like? Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, uh, good to be with you. And and. Hello to everyone that's that's watching and following. Um, so you think about implicit bias, um, think about it this way. As you live your life, you know, day to day from birth until now, uh, you take it in the world. You take it in information about the world. Some things you take in repeatedly. Uh, some, some things are about objects, some things are about people. So if you see certain people in certain groups, uh, or certain groups, certain people in certain roles, certain people in certain traits over and over again, your mind sort of locks it in. So if I say, for example, police officer, you think male doesn't make you a bad person. You just might have seen more p- male police officers and female officers. And so you come to associate certain groups and certain traits to certain groups and certain roles. And that's at the heart of implicit bias. So the technical definition of implicit bias is when a stereotype, an association of a group with the trait, can affect how you think, feel, and behave at a subconscious level. Right? And so stereotypes form over your lifetime simply due to overexposure to groups and traits. So that's um, as simple as the example about the police officer, but also if you're thinking about, if I say to you, uh, priest, certain things come to mind. If I say to you, judge, certain things come to mind. So when I give you certain categories or groups, a set of information is going to come to mind because you've been exposed to it. And that can apply to social groups, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, male, female, different groups as well. So in our society, if certain groups are associated with more negative traits, while other groups associated with more positive traits, they're going to experience different life outcomes. So implicit bias in our work, uh, we look at primarily at uh, criminal justice, uh, healthcare, education, social services, and the corporate space to look at how our biases can play out in a systemic way that affects the quality of life of different groups. Uh, we focus more on race, but we also uh, talk about um, uh, gender, we talk about age, we talk about obesity, uh, attractiveness, having an accent versus not. So there's many different bases of inclusion or exclusion, which can be the basis of bias. But we look at it through the, the lens of race, given what's happened in our country historically, as well as what's going on today. 
so going on to that, so we're, we're, we're in quarantine. Uh, restrictions have sort of lifted. The George Floyd murder uh, mm-hmm. happened earlier this year. And, um, you know, even for me, someone who's not as well-versed in this work as you are, I got hit up repeatedly to do trainings. And I was like, I don't do this. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do no trainings on bias. <laughs> like, what, what has happened for your work since, like, as of late? What's, what's going on? So, no, I mean, it's been a significant demand. I mean, I'm booked out for several months. Um, but you can still email us now, you know. We can make it. <laughs> no, you <laughs> have. Yeah, we have a team of trainers. So we've been, I've been doing diversity training in some form for 20 years. Go back to when I was in, even just coming out of grad school. So I was doing work, diversity training off and on uh, for several years. And then about um, five years ago, four to five years ago, when I started working with the Obama administration, um, my appointment with the, the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges, I took leave from Morehouse. This is the fall of 2015. Um, took leave from Morehouse and moved up, moved up to D.C. So I was housed at the U.S. Department of Education, uh, but also worked at the Department of Justice in the White House on several projects, including My Brother's Keeper uh, and the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. And so what happened was I was the White House's official implicit bias trainer when it came to law enforcement, following the release of the 21st Century Policing Report that the Department of Justice put out. And so what happened is these uh, police chiefs command staff would come to the White House for some briefings. And so I provided implicit bias training. It's about an hour and a half or so. And those chiefs began to invite me out to their respective police departments to train the entire police forces. So even prior to the virus, I'd already trained about 25,000 police officers across the country. I touched, you know, 1,500, 2,000 police departments. So you're already doing this work. And then when George Floyd occurred a few months ago, um, it, it just shot up because we were doing in-person in trainings, but then we transitioned to virtual. And so you had a lot of corporations, a lot of organizations, you know, wanting to sort of take a stand on social justice and racial equity. And so, yeah, demand increased significantly. So our, our, our business fluctuates in terms of the percentage of law enforcement, healthcare, I mean, corporations, it just sort of varies, but there has been a significant uptick to George Floyd and not just in law enforcement. Um, a lot of corporations, organizations, nonprofits have been having training as well. Can you comment on the whole defunding police wave? Like what, what, how you think about that? What, what that means for you? I, I have to be honest that that phrase defund the police when I first heard it, knowing cops as I do, I knew it was going to be problematic. I understood the intent behind it. And I agree with the intent, right? Because I've trained crisis intervention teams. So if you have an incident and you have a cop show up, a paramedic show up, and a social worker show up, or a mental health professional, that's your ideal. That's what crisis intervention teams do. Um, a lot of police departments don't have the resources for that. And so what happens is a cop shows up and has to serve all three roles. And they may not be trained to do so. So I understand the notion of wanting funding to go towards a system where you had a more comprehensive approach to engage in the public. Absolutely, I get that. But the phrase defund was the problem because a lot of folks have noticed most police budgets, 80, 90% are just salaries and pensions, 80 to 90%. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot of fat to trim. So we need to trim the fat and transfer money. That's, it's not a lot of fat there. I mean, a few departments may have something you can cut. I mean, a program here or there. Uh, but many of them, it's already pretty lean. So I understood the sentiment, the intent behind it. I completely agree and I get it. The phrase defunding, it, it almost meaning like take funding away from police and put it somewhere else. Like, and, and, and there was never, in my, from my perspective, 
a consensus understanding of how much that meant. Along the continuum of defunding, are you saying take all the money away, take some of it away, take most of it away? I don't know. I just never, but I do know from the police perspective, that's that's a challenge just logistically. Um, but from an impact perspective and an engaged perspective, I, I agree with it. I get it. Yeah, the I, I think the association. You know, I mean, every, everything that ha- kind of happens with like politics or waves, there could be multiple uh, meanings that people ascribe to a phrase and, mm-hmm. and it, the broadness of it probably captured people that had different sentiments. Like some people want to want to abolish the police mm-hmm. and some people want to redivert resources from the police. But mm-hmm. the whole defund thing captured all of them. <laughs> so like the the intent, the the budget intent could sound like. Uh, how you understand it. I, I know a lot of people, uh, 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 you know, a percentage of people that wanted the police to be completely eliminated, which was, um, which, you know, I always found a little problematic and kind of confusing um, because uh, it's like when the crisis occurs, like what, what should happen? What does happen? What, what can happen uh, without some type of intervention from, from officers there? But, but like you, I understand the sentiment with the way that you describe it, I just knew that more people were sort of behind it than just the folks that wanted to like decrease the budget a little bit. When you hear the phrase, there are some good cops, how do you respond to that? There are, I think, many good cops. Um, there, I mean, I, I think I think policing is like many of the large industries where you're gonna have a variability in performance, competence, and skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's very, you gotta understand there's 18,000 police departments in the United States with varying levels of training. I mean, there's, there's no national standards around policing in terms of the requirements. So right now, in some states, you, can be, you have to be 21 when you're sworn. In four states right now, you'll be 18. 18 years old, sworn in. What you got to understand about that, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain most responsible for critical thinking and decision-making, doesn't fully form until your mid-20s. So you got 18-year-olds with a gun and a badge with impulse control issues because they are adolescents, they are impulse control issues, uh, underdeveloped brain, 12 weeks of training on the street. Not old enough to drink, but it takes somebody's life. That sort of thing is tough, right? Because it's so much variability. So, yeah, there's certain people that shouldn't be cops. I've told the cops, say, yeah, certain people should be cops. And I ask them, you know, do you vouch for police across the country? Say, across the country, I wouldn't necessarily vouch for anybody in my department. So, cops, no. You talk to them one on one, they'll tell you, yeah, not everybody's cut out for this. Everybody's mm-hmm. built for this mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Now, the only actual percentage of people that should not be police, I think that's probably an unknowable thing. Uh, are, do they exist? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of folks join policing because of the benefits are great. The retirement is great. You can get, you can join the 18, 25 years in, retire, get a full package and have a second career. I get it. But in terms of having the skills, the confidence, the, the interpersonal um, uh, uh, acumen, they, they, they would acknowledge they don't all have that to the level that they should. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the case with every profession too. Just like I mean, you, and you just said that, like with with education, which you know is a is a large focus of your work. How how would you break that down? Because I know your 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 implicit bias training has its own array of types of groups, but mm-hmm. when it comes to your work, educating and teaching, what percentage of that is sort of your your daily life right now? Um, well, this is this is so we're full time. So we run at the National Training Institute of Race and Equity is a full body diversity training entity. Got it. And so um, I'm currently, I'm still a faculty at Morehouse, still have my tenure, but I'm not teaching. Okay. And so, you know, we have an arrangement and actually a percentage of our revenue goes to Morehouse. 
Mm-hmm. So we worked that out um, so that they benefit and we push the, you know, push the brand and, you know, we, we include Morehouse in our, in our trainings. Like when you leave our trainings, you know about implicit bias, but you also know about Morehouse and what it takes to improve the lives of black males. You don't know both, both of those. Um, so, yeah, I would say it, it, uh, right now, I'd say if I had to break it down in our four or five sweet spots, criminal justice, you know, so I'd say probably maybe 20% criminal justice. 10% healthcare, maybe 30, 40% education. Yeah, probably the rest between policing and non I'm sorry, uh, corporations and nonprofits. So it's 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 a mix. I mean, the social services thing we do, oh, let me back up. We do we train a lot of city and county governments. Like we'll train all the county and city employees for a particular place. Like we have a, the master agreement for Los Angeles County. So San Francisco County had to train all their people. It's 108,000 employees. We train about 60,000 of their employees. And Los Angeles County is 38 different departments. So one day you might be training social services. The next day uh, it's weights and measures. The next day is beaches and harbors. I mean, it's all types of, you know, mm-hmm. units. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's quite diverse still, but it, it just ebbs and flows. Well, what about, what about your routine? Like your process for... Um how you're approaching the week, like how much of it is the business development versus like actually in-class training? So now my, my balance is off because because of the demand and, and people requesting me as a trainer, I'm training like two to three, two to three days, I mean, two to three sessions per day mm. and the virtual sessions, right? So the irony is with this virtual piece, we've increased capacity because I'm not on a plane, train, automobile, travel between cities. Mm-hmm. So I could train three cities in one day, quite efficient. But the demand has picked up so much <laughs> where um, I got two books I need to write. I got some, some video. We're working on a learning management platform. So, so in a couple of months, we're going to have a lot of this online. And so my balance is not good right now because the long-term play really is the, the learning management platform. It's the, it's the automated approach where, you know, I'm sleeping and people are taking courses. That's what, that's what we want. But the live trainings are sort of like a commercial or sort of, a way to feed them into the learning management platform once it's done. But I'm not where I should be. I, I'd say 90% of my, 80% of my workday is tr- actual training. And then 10% is meetings, calls. Another 10% is some uh, creative uh, videotaping, working on LMS. But it's not, it's, it's a funky sort of situation now. But these are good problems. These, were, these are good problems. And <laughs> it's high. Yeah. But, as, a, as an entrepreneur, we know this, that, you know, sometimes the short-term sacrifice for the long-term model, that's going to mm-hmm. be lucrative. Right. You just got to make time for it. Mm-hmm. And I just got to be better at that. And and two books. How do you write two books at the same time? I, I don't know how to write one, you know. No, no, I got two books in my head. Two, or this no, 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 no. This, this is my first book. But but okay. I have two books in my head. I haven't had yeah. time to write them yet. Right. Like, I have an outline in my head. Because okay. I'm training so much and doing everything else, I can't even get the time, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's crazy because of my trainings, I promote the books of like my colleagues that that um, implicit bias, and I've, I've easily, easily between the two of them, sold at least fifty thousand copies. Mm-hmm. Easy for them mm-hmm. because I train five to ten thousand people a week, mm-hmm. right? And even before the virus hit, I, I was you know so because I want the people to have good science. So I, I promote two, uh, and I don't get a cut or anything. I just recommend these books, uh-huh. and I'll and I'll go into a I'll go to an organization after the first training. They say, "Yeah, we bought the books you recommended for all of our employees, <laughs> like all of them." I'm like, "Man, I could have been me." Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So uh, I haven't written them yet. I have them in my head. 
my goal was to take off a month from mid-December to mid-January to focus on making some progress on one of them. Mm-hmm. But that's those dates are filling up. Like, yeah, these clients are aggressive and they're willing to pay a premium. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, all the people cook on Monday morning too. So very fortunate that we have a few minutes of this brother's time. Uh, you're, I, I can vouch for, I want to ask about sort of the results and the impact and what the ongoing, I'm sure it kind of looks different, but uh, your talk in San Diego last year was very interactive, informative, inspiring, um, and, and cha- it challenged, I think, me and other people. Uh, listening. So it was definitely an experience that I think for folks that were already committed to yeah. the field, like wanted to do more with you, you know, yeah. like there was like a level of um, engagement. And I don't know, I think you kind of presented where things are in a way that uh, prompted continuous growth for whoever was listening. Um, yeah. So what what does the progression look like? Like, is it like a one-time thing? Is it like six months out? Like, how does it work? And what are some of the results of the engagement? So our full cycle is probably 18 months, all right? And so we, we start off with two content sessions, trainings. So one is what we call awareness training. The other is what we call mitigation training. So awareness is what it sounds like, right? We raise your awareness about a place of bias. We talk about the causes, the consequences, give you the research, um, and we give you recommendations as well things you can do as an individual once you're done, right? Like concrete recommendations, things people can start that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very much about impact. And so we're, we're going to give you stuff that's not super macro. It's like, what is a micro action I can take when I'm done? That's that's what we tend to do. The other one is um, mitigation training. And that's that focuses on change of behavior. And we talk about organizational change, right? What can be done at the organizational level? Hiring, promotion, talent development, exit, um, strategic planning, performance evaluation. So we talk a lot about the organization and what they can do in addition to some more, some additional personal recommendations. So those are the sort of two content ones up front. Then we say, okay, we know we can do it at the personal level. We know what you do at the organization level. Um, so we have the set of recommendations that the science said should work. Said it's like 15, 20 recommendations. And we can work with you through an implementation phase. So you can say, okay, over the next 12 months, we're going to implement one of these recommendations per month. Uh, Dr. Marks and the entire team, National Training Against Student Race and Equity, the entire team, can you work with us as we implement these recommendations to make sure we're doing it right, to make sure we're measuring the impact as we go along. So that's your 12-month sort of engagement where we're hands-on with the client, walking them through the implementation. And then um, there's a, a post-test. Now, I should have mentioned this. On the front end, with a, with a full cycle, we have an evaluation uh, um, uh, phase where we measure we collect new data or we, we measure existing data. So for example, police, police department. We say, okay, police department, uh, let's look at your outcomes in terms of arrests, citizen complaints, ticket citations, that's vary by race, gender, age. So we, look, we take a deep dive into existing data, okay? Then you have the intervention. And then at month, four, like 14 months out, 16 months out, when they've had the recommendations implemented over that year and have some time to let them sort of sink in, then we do a post-test and we compare it to the pre-test to see if there's been any measurable change. Now, to your point about the impact that it's had, it's varied because most of our clients up until, this, up until very recently have not gone through the full cycle. They'll get the awareness training. They may get the mitigation training and then they'll say, well, we got it from that, from here. Especially if they have, if it's, so, so our Fortune 500 companies, we have several Fortune 500 companies. And they'll have a CDO, a chief diversity officer. And it's sort of like their shop is their thing. They're bringing me in as a subject matter expert, but they have their own plan. 
So we do the awareness training, mitigation, then you know, they'll say we'll take it from here. And so I'm not involved in implementation in a follow-up phase. That's typically the case. So I can't give you long-term impact data because most of our clients have not implemented the recommendations over the long term with, with quality control where I can say what worked and what didn't work in a concrete way. Last point, what I will say is self-report. I'll get officers who email me, hey, Dr. Marks, I was in your session last year at LAPD. I, you know, when you said, when you presented, I wasn't really open to it, but I was on the street the other day. I used what you said, it really helped me. I'll get a lot of that mm-hmm. where people are self-reporting impact. But in terms of a systemic measure of it, have not been able to do it. Well, what's what's that like for you to to not see it through? I mean, it sounds like you- Frustrating. Yeah. Um, because I tell companies up front, I'm like, are you serious or not? Right? Because if you because they call us, oh, well, since George Floyd happened, we got to do some racial equity work. We want to be an anti-racist organization. It's top priority, blah, 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 blah. And then we give them our rates, some of them, and they push it back. Oh, can I get a discount? Can I get this? I'm like, first of all, I could charge double what we charge. We charge yeah. a, a very reasonable rate for, for the quality we deliver. And second of all, you said you were serious. So if you're serious, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And, it's, and if you're serious, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not a check the box situation, right? You just have your training, say you had it. Oh, we brought it back to my White House, all that. That's cute. That looks good. But if you want to have impact, it's, it's a marathon. It's, it's a longer term. And so I tell them, do you want to have impact or not? I mean, doing the awareness training is better than not. So it's something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. But when I'm in the room with the audience, I level set expectations. I'm like, look, don't expect all this stuff to change in a couple of hours. Right? I, can, I can help you with the process. But if you really want to change, that's going to take much longer. Mm-hmm. So it can be a bit frustrating, especially when new clients ask, well, like, yeah, like you're asking, well, what work? Tell me organization where you saw the impact and so forth. And it's, it's difficult. But that's, that's what any diversity trainer, by the way. Right, whether it's me or somebody else, implicit bias training, especially with implicit bias, the, the long term impact of the recommendations implemented with quality control is extremely rare. Mm. And, and or, or there's confounding variables. For example, police department. The thing about police, and, and you, you, you know, people need to understand this the thing about policing with training, they get a lot of training, most of them, right? Mm-hmm. So one week is implicit bias. Next week is procedural justice. Next week is de-escalation. If they get stuff, so I might come at a certain point, a year later, I come back saying, hey, I want to measure the implicit bias training work. They've had training on eight of the topics. So can I isolate it and say it was just implicit bias mm-hmm. or was it in combination with these others? Mm-hmm. And it could be difficult to do. Well, that's why I commend you. And that's why I can't do it. <laughs> because, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely want somebody that, like understands the dynamics and continuing to push, even though they're like shortcomings. But when the people that reach out to me, and you're you've been deep in this work for a long time, that's that's sort of, that's what I anticipated would have happened. Because if the if the decision maker, the CEO or whoever is in charge says, "Hey, let's bring somebody in," mm-hmm. you know, they make it tax it, it taxes somebody to find a vendor. You would be maybe one of a few options, mm-hmm. and then. If you give them a rate, they may feel um, the person that was tasked with it, like they're not the decider. So they got to like, oh, I can't bring out stuff. I can't bring a price like this to the person that's the decider. Mm-hmm. It'd be easier if you just spoke to the decider, you know, okay. but, right. then, but then it wears off and like people get uncomfortable mm-hmm. and then they don't want to. And then other work priorities get in the way. And then they're kind of like, mm-hmm. it's pushed off to the side. So that's, that's how I envision the progression. And it sounds like some of that is the case. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, what I tell people now in this window of time, right, George Floyd and the country loving black folks and race and equity, 
if people say to me, well, is implicit bias training a fad? I'm like, no, we've been studying this for 50 years. It's not a fad. But what I do say is, I wonder if this, this window of people loving black folks and want to do racial equity work, is that a fad? Mm-hmm. That's my concern. Mm-hmm. Is that nine, 12 months from now, the winds of change will blow and we'll be on to something else and all this racial equity stuff will go away, right? So what I tell my, my, my part is, you, if you're serious, make it um, stick. Put it in your five-year strategic plan. So an equity initiative with a budget. So every year there's a line item so people know that you're serious. Keep uh, having your standing meetings. Have, a, have your newsletter. Have a little equity corner in your newsletter. Like put it in, institutionalize it so that when this window is closed, you're still doing the work because you value it on principle, not based on timing, right? Not what's going on in the country and having to appease some of your frontline workers who may be pushing you. Okay. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's going to vary, but for some people, they're just doing this to cover themselves and to check the box. And I understand that. Right. But other folks, and there are a few organizations that are really serious. Has it worn off? I don't, it, it well, I, your, de- your demand is still high. So maybe has worn right. off. my demand is still high. I think, it, I, you know, cause we're booked out until the spring of next year mm-hmm. and people will wait. Like I have, I have a team. We have 10 trainers in New York, four in Atlanta, four in LA. So we have a team of trainers. And so I'll say, look, I'm booked out, me, Brian Marks, but we can get some other trainers. And so they're like, no, we're, they're willing. They're willing. Some of them will say we need something now and they're willing to do a joint session. So because our sessions are virtual, they'll say, okay, you can piggyback us on an existing session. Yeah, we just do that. We just add them in. They just won't get to give like open remarks and all of that, but we can, we can add them in. I mean, that, that's those who are really pressed. They was like, look, we'll just take what we can get. Mm-hmm. Others will say, well, we'll wait for you. We'll wait three or four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that the other trainers aren't good. They are very good. Um, but if they see me somewhere and they said, we want you to do it. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, no, the demand is still there. It hasn't, hasn't waned. Um, we, we're, we still get every day, still get requests. And we don't advertise at all, by the way, mm-hmm. which is horrible, but it's all word of mouth. Right. And so th- that's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But even before the virus, we were, we were, I'm excited to hear about when it comes out, what the online platform is going to look like. And, I, you know, I know a lot of uh, being in Silicon Valley, I know a lot of people sort of in the VC space and in the software engineering space. Do you have a launch date for the online platform? Nah, I mean, we, we're going to try to go to beta with some some um, some of our partners, probably I'd say late November, where okay. they can sort of pick the tires oh. and try it out. Uh-huh. Um we wanted to get it before the end of the calendar year. I'm, I'm pushing, but it's, it's going to be tough because a lot of it is on me. I got to videotape a lot of it. So think about it like this. Uh, are you familiar with Masterclass? The yeah. Sort of like that, right? You mm-hmm. click on a topic. It's like 14 lessons. Each mm-hmm. of them are like 10 to 12 minutes, sort of short. Um, and it takes a fair amount of editing. We're going to have, you know, uh, learning checks where you have to answer questions. And so... I'm, I'm the bottleneck because I'm training so much. And so now, once once I get some of my other trainers to come in and they'll relieve me to a certain extent, um, that's going to help. So in the weekends, I just got I just got to kill it over the weekend. like Because we have, the goal is to have about 20 courses up. So implicit bias is just one. Like in, in the world of, even in the world of implicit bias, there's awareness, there's mitigation, there's, there's uh, reducing bias to specific groups. I mean, so it's, it's going to be a full sort of sweep of, of courses there. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're hoping that the sort of minimum viable product, the awareness mitigation and the allyship course done by late November, early December is, is the goal. Yeah. I have a contact that, that it sounds like you're committed to the video process, but if you ever want to talk, I have a friend that does trainings for enterprise companies, it's called Avenue. 
I'll shoot your assistant a message about it. If you ever want to talk to him, let me know. Okay, um, no, absolutely. We're, we're open. We're open to different, you know, format. I want to talk a little bit about family and some of the stuff you do outside of work. Okay. Uh, you're also an ordained minister. Is that correct? Yes. What is what is your sort of uh, spiritual or, or religious work look like right now? So it's interesting <laughs> because you got the COVID thing and then the business piece. So even before the virus, um, so I was an associate pastor uh, at a Baptist church for several years. This is indicator outside of Atlanta. And then I went to the White House. And so when I moved to the White House, I had to sort of, you know, I couldn't fulfill those responsibilities. So the White House came back in the spring, uh, the late fall of 2016. And then um, the, uh, so we, we were back at that church, but then the senior pastor, he left. And then I started traveling like crazy. So my wife and I decided, okay, um, let's, let's pull back from you being a social pastor because you're on the road too much. Uh, we were members of a, of a church. Um, and so the, the sort of ministry, if you will, be, my, my classroom sort of expanded, my pulpit expanded, where a lot of my trainings, like if you listen to my trainings, sometimes at certain points, they feel like sermons, right? I'm, I'm given biblical principles, I'm, I, but it, see, a lot of my biblical principles align with the science anyway, so it makes it easy. I'm a scientist and, and a, a preacher. I'm a person of faith and of facts, is what I say. Mm-hmm. And so I feel in this season that God has given me a way to communicate with many different audiences, because uh, this is all God. Like, if you, what I do is so funny. What I do, same thing I'm doing at Morehouse all my career. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I put a little extra in it. I make it unique. And, I, you know, I use a pole. I use videos and everything else. I mean, I like freestyle a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I bring me to the space, but it is the essence of, of me. And God gave me a series of experiences where now I can step into a room full of all white officers and speak to them in a way that connects and still keep my authentic self. I'm a black man born in the Bronx, raised in Queens, NYPD was active. I came of age in, in the height of the crack epidemic in New York City. Lots going on back there. So I've seen a lot of different things. Um, my middle, I'm, I'm the youngest of three boys. My middle brother is uh, an attorney. He was assistant district attorney for Fulton County, Atlanta. So my middle brother spent his adult life locking people up. My oldest brother is locked up. Or should I say he was in, in and out of the system. He's been out for about three years now. But so for me, the work-life balance, the, the spiritual piece, it's, it's, it's all integrated. Like what I do, do in kind of my trainings you, you hear in my story i'm talking about my brothers about my wife my spiritual i mean you see it's all there mm-hmm. and so it's been very interesting i used to be a rapper when i when i was young so sometimes i ask you to freestyle or whatever i do that so i, I bring all of me to the table mm-hmm. uh but that when a balance falls short i have two young kids one's a six-year-old one's 13 i have a grown daughter but the young kids uh that balance is tough I mean, it, it's, it's, even though I'm home working out of my, out of my basement office, mm-hmm. I'm going to be working 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. They'll come down, give me a hug. Hey, hey, hey. And then I'm back to work. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Right. I, I need more. T- <laughs> and my justification is well, I'm building intergenerational wealth for them to make it easy. But you know, for a lot of kids, how do they spell love? T I M E. Right. I just got to give them more time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to balance the spiritual, the impact because they, you know, if, if we're out there, we have these officers involved shootings, unarmed black folks, I'm trying to do my part to contribute there, trying to touch these cops, you know, trying to raise the kids. So mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't have the secret sauce yet. I'm, I'm, I'm 
try to balance it like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And I think the secret sauce is kind of a myth, you know. I, I think <laughs> I think that when people find their purpose, like that's that's really what I celebrate and what's beautiful. Other things get sacrificed. I don't have children, so I don't have to like look at that sacrifice. I don't have a significant other. Um, but I hear that and uh and I'm just like, but you find your purpose though. There's beauty in that. And and obviously because you're committing to it, there's there's like uh this it's life giving um in many ways for for you. And I can hear how palpable the excitement is and how you talk about your work. The country, the country is about to go. So this is be released after the election. During the debates, and I think in some news reports, the the president talked about uh defunding implicit bias or racial sensitivity training. Uh-huh. Um, thoughts. So no, we were affected by that. So what happened was uh, we have three clients that are federal agencies and all three of them emailed like, hey, got this letter. And they, they sent the letter. And the letter's crazy, right? So the letter's like um, different bullet points. But at the end of the day, what they were saying was no training could talk about the United States of America or any racial group in a way that, that says they're inherently racist or evil. I said, well, we don't do that anyway. But the letter still read. It was strange. It sort of read like he talks. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know, you read something, it's somebody's talking. It's like the grandma. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so we did have to make a slight adjustment, but not, not too major. I mean, because we we do give historical context. And so we talk about the history of America being, you know, having bias from the beginning. And we talk about it in a very explicit way. So... For some of the agencies, they said, well, we, need, we know that you need context, so can you make the bigger points without all the details of it? I was like, okay, fine. So I was willing to adjust in that way, but the point is that you can't look at bias today without looking at it yesterday, mm-hmm. that this country has been riddled with bias from the beginning. So I do make that point, mm-hmm. um, but you know, he's like, well, you, know, you never know people are watching, they may be recording and this and that, fine. And then we don't know if after the election, um, because it's an interesting thing, if Trump loses, right, how likely are they to, to enforce this stuff? Right? All diversity trainers are going to listen in to make sure, okay? And then some agencies say, well, you know what? We're just going to wait to, the, to January 20th. So they can just put it off. And so they, then they're clear. Uh, if he wins, then that's something different. Um, and uh, again, we, we don't call the United States an inherently racist or evil. That, that's, that's word for word. And we don't call white people inherently racist or evil, or any group for that matter. Mm-hmm. So we're okay. But if you're not training, you may feel uncomfortable now and then because we're going to push you. Mm-hmm. You have to own the fact that we live in a society where certain groups are favored of other groups. That's just what it is. Can you be politically involved? Or are you like staying out of politics? What's your, what's your... So in, in our, I'm apolitical in our training. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm an independent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Obama administration, I'm a voter for Obama. And so in, in terms of this election, I'm voting for Biden. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of the trainings, no, I'm apolitical. Like I, I tried not to, because I trained a lot of cops and all that. And, and I tell them I was with the Obama administration, right? I put it out there. And so they'll assume, you know, certain things about me, uh, some of which may be true or not true. That's the only sort of political thing I, I sort of bring in about me, mm-hmm. because I use that, because I, I, I give them a bullet point list about me. You know, born in the Bronx, raised in Queens, went to Morehouse grad school, Obama administration, Morehouse, I get boom, 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 boom. And then I ask them on a poll question later on, I say, what was your initial gut reaction towards me when I mentioned that I work with the Obama administration? I put it as a question on the screen and they could answer on their phones. The response options are very negative, negative, no reaction, positive, very positive. Recently, 
with the police department, but well, the range will be anywhere on the negative side, negative reaction, anywhere from with police, anywhere from 30 to 60. Mm-hmm. So it's a negative reaction. Mm-hmm. And so I tell them, y'all don't know me, right? I, I mean, I just gave you my intro the first five minutes. And I'm asking this question. Y'all don't know me that well. Mm-hmm. But you may associate certain traits with the, with the Obama administration or certain traits with the people who work for the Obama administration, but mm-hmm. you don't know me, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I use that. Right. Because I tell them we're living in a hyper partisan country where I understand Republicans, Democrats, may not even talk to each other in certain spaces. I get that. OK. Um, but you prejudge me. That's a form of bias. If you'd have a negative or positive reaction to be based upon this group and, and, and that affiliation. But, yeah, I don't talk politics in, in depth. I mean, I mean, a Trump thing. Uh, it, it's it's at this point, the evidence speaks for itself in terms of who he is, what he believes and, and so forth. Um, and for me to risk getting into an argument with somebody who supports Trump, knowing that the evidence is minimal to support a positive perception, it's, it's, it's not worth it. And then the rest of the audience is going to witness that. Yeah. Right. Um, but no, but so, I, but our trainings in general, because a lot of folks bring us in, they want us to talk about the science of implicit bias, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily get all political. And we understand that. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but we don't have a few more minutes left. And I wanted to, I have like a rapid fire portion that I do. Okay. So, um, you ready for it? Yep. Do you meditate? No, but I pray. Do you have a motto? Uh, yes. I'd say um, perfection is the goal, but excellence is acceptable. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? Being, uh, being unhealthy. What's one book you would recommend? The Purple Cow. Oh, Seth Golden. Mm-hmm. Last final question. Your house is on fire. Your family and your pets are out. What's three things you grab? For my house, three things I grab, probably uh, photos, photo books of my parents and grandparents. I don't even have them scanned the way I need to. My, <laughs> probably my laptop. Um, and, oh, cash. I got money in my house. <laughs> Not a lot. Don't come rob me. Don't come rob me. Right? I got a lot. I got a little bit. Because you know what? You know when they are predicting the crash and all this other stuff. Yeah, you know. Don't come rob me now. Okay. We don't know your address. We'll keep it that way. (laughs) It's not a lot. It's not a lot. Right. That's very interesting. Uh, I never actually thought about that. That's a good question. Okay. One good question for my uh, discussion with Dr. Brian Marks. I appreciate you, sir. It was a pleasure to have you on. All right, no problem. I appreciate the invitation. Glad to be with you. Peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. I'd like to thank the good brother, Dr. Bryant Marks, for sharing his experience, uh, story, and impact around the implicit bias work he does for uh, public institutions and the private sector across the country. is incredibly important work. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and we'll, you know, consider reaching out to him if you or your company has been having these conversations on how to bring bias to the forefront and resolve it in a way that better serves the people that you uh, do business with or are in community with. I'd also like to thank, of course, our listeners. Thank you. Please consider subscribing to Cook on Monday Morning, the YouTube channel, if you haven't already. 
I'm grateful to you and I appreciate your continued support. Share the podcast with a friend. Uh, help us grow our community of doers. And, you know, if, you listen, if you're listening via audio, also hit subscribe or rate and review it on Apple if that's how you enjoy the podcast. Now, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. You can find the description in the box below. It goes over the equipment that we use and some book recommendations that could be helpful in considering an approach for you. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive social impact. Uh, we do that by building strategic partnerships between businesses and government. Uh, we recruit diversity talents at high impact roles. And we help companies drive impact in the communities where they do business. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email. I'm at info at I'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible. Our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, sir. Our copy editor, uh, Fernando Seco Marquez and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both. Now I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. They are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn, and also a uh, shout out to our folks on the continent of Africa, uh, Nigeria, and also, you know, in the islands in Jamaica, uh, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to because of you. Until we meet again. Peace, peace, and we out.